0: So, very thankful to be again in the house of the living God and to have an opportunity to fellowship with you, dear ones, in the gospel record and to come before you with humble hearts to understand the things that we are uh, in possession of through God's word is purely by virtue of God's sovereign grace. Isn't it gracious of God to bestow His word? in our own language, so that we might rejoice in the things that God has prepared for us. The Apostle Paul said on one occasion in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither hath it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for them that love him. This morning I would like to title our message, Blessed Assurance. I'd like to begin by going to the fifth chapter of the gospel of the uh, 1st John, 1st John, the little epistle of 1st John. Most commentators would agree that the gospel account of John as well as the book of Revelation uh, and these three short epistles were written during the latter years of the apostle himself who at this time was actually serving in the church at Ephesus. And uh, as an aged apostle, he would be uh, feeling a a particular weight at this point in his life because realizing that he's the last surviving apostle. And there was a, a dangerous teaching that had invaded the churches, especially those of Asia. The churches that are addressed in the Revelation letter, Um, in those churches there was a rise of what was called agnosticism, Uh, the idea that nothing really can be known of a certain, nothing can be known for sure to either exist or to be a reality. So it's interesting to my mind that the Apostle John in this little epistle, 1 John, five little chapters that are in our English Bible, but in this short epistle he would use the word know 38 times, 38 times, talking about the things that we can be certain about, the things that a child of God is able to know experientially. I want us to read the first 13 verses of 1 John chapter 5 in our study of the biblical doctrine of assurance. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and every one that loveth him that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree in one. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which hath testified of his Son. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. And all the people said, Amen. This account in the epistle of First John bears witness to the reality of the inheritance that all of the elect family of God will have in Christ ultimately in eternal glory. But is it your experience that many times we are prone to doubt? Many times we are prone to fear. Am I among those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life? Is there a way that I am able to be assured of eternal life? That, that I have in possession by faith eternal life? Is it important for us to... Uh, understand the gift of faith and what that faith is as a conduit that connects us relationally to the Father through His Son, Jesus Christ. Is it important for us to actually preach and publish the gospel of Jesus Christ so that others may hear? I believe it is. And I can say without equivocation this morning upon the testimony of the Word of God that the only ones that we are able to assure of eternal life are those who believe in the Son of God. And those who have a life that is reflective of repentance from known sin, reflective of an attitude toward the law of God, not that we are antinomian, not that we are against the law of God, but that we look at the law of God as a, a, a way of life that God would instruct us that God would assist us, that God would help us in the keeping or the guarding of it. We stand before you looking not at the law in the hand of Moses, but at the law in the hand of Jesus Christ. We look at it as a fulfilled law on our behalf for those who trust in him for salvation. I'm mindful of one missionary that was trying to translate the Bible, the New Testament, into the uh, language of the natives, and he could not come up with a proper or adequate word for faith. And about the time he was struggling with this word and trying to figure out what kind of word in their language they would understand, uh, one of his fellow workers came in after a long, hard day of work, and he just plopped down into a chair. And he just, boom, plopped down into a chair in his study. And, and the minister was looking at the man and he says, What is the word for what you just did? He said, I just put my whole weight on my chair. And the whole weight supports me. And he said, What is that word? And that's the word that he translated for faith. And it's really an adequate word. <laughs> Because faith is when we put all the weight of our life, all the weight of our uh, existence into the hand of Jesus Christ. Now, why would we think that this is an important thing for us to know? That's part of what I want to deal with this morning. I want us to go back to the Old Testament, just one Old Testament verse very quickly in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah. I want you to see in Isaiah chapter 32. We're going to go to several usages in our Bibles of the word assurance. And here is an Old Testament usage that is very uh, pointed in our understanding of blessed assurance. Listen to what Isaiah said 700 years before the coming of Christ. He would write in verse 1, Behold, one day a king is going to reign in righteousness and princes are going to rule in judgment and a man shall be in hiding place from the wind and a covert from the tempest. Now, I'm going to submit to you this morning that that man is Jesus Christ. He's pointing toward the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, who would come. And this individual is going to be a covert from the tempest as rivers of water in dry places and a shadow of a great rock in a weary land, that is so descriptive of what Christ is uh, to the child of God. In that same chapter, we come down to verse seventeen, "And the work of righteousness shall be peace, and the effect of righteousness, quietness, and assurance for forever. This is blessed assurance. Assurance is the spiritual birthright of every believer. I want to share with you Webster's dictionary um, definition of assurance. He says, It is a pledge or guarantee a state of being sure or certain and having full confidence toward a promise. Now, I think that's a good and adequate definition of what assurance is. It's a pledge or guarantee, a state of being sure or certain, full of confidence toward what is promised. True assurance rests upon the unchanging will and unassailable promises of a holy God that are found only in his word. Someone says, well, I tell you what, preacher... I know you're a preacher and you love to read and study the Bible, but that doesn't mean I have to. And I just, uh, quite frankly, I don't get a thing out of it, uh, so I never read it. I'm going to tell you that's a dangerous place to be. That's a dangerous place to be, especially when it comes to assurance. Because there's no assurance of eternal life to those who do not love the Word of God. And if I don't love the word of God, something's wrong, not with the word and not with God, but something's wrong with me. So here in the Old Testament book of Isaiah, I find this wonderful description of what we have in Christ. I love what uh, Matthew Henry said. He, he, he quoted from Faber. Uh, who was a poet, and he says, These surface troubles come and go like ruffles of the sea. The deeper depth is out of reach to all my God but thee. He was describing the attitude of assurance, realizing that my present circumstances will never change the future promise from being fulfilled that God has made in his word. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't it wonderful to think that it is the blood of Jesus Christ that makes us safe. And it is the word of God that makes us sure. We have in Christ Jesus the substance of true assurance because of his blood. We're going to develop that more in a moment in the book of Hebrews. But in Christ we have the substance of assurance. In Christ We have the source of true assurance because of his accomplished and finished work upon the cross. And in Christ, we have the full scope of what assurance is, that it is hope, it is faith, it is understanding, it is love. Our salvation this morning is not something, but someone. Our salvation is Jesus Christ. And produces this quietness of spirit. And this unshakable confidence in the future. No matter what our present circumstances are. As Christians. As true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have confidence toward the future. You see that's where we're coming from this morning. And that's why it's so important. For the children of God to be reminded of these things. Now, now let's go back to our New Testament record. I want us to uh let's go uh first to the book of acts in acts chapter 17 paul's preaching uh to the people of athens years and years ago he's preaching to them the uh doctrines of grace he's he's uh this is one of the most powerful sermons that we have record of Amen. the apostle paul preaching and much could be said on that but i want to draw your attention To something near the close of this message. In Acts chapter 17. Listen in verses 30 and 31. Are you with me here? Acts 17 30 and 31. And the times of this ignorance God winked at. But now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Now when he says all men. I believe that's characteristic of the universal call of the gospel. We we are under a divine mandate to preach the gospel to all men. All men without reservation. All nations without reservation. But we understand from the teaching of God's word that only those who are given the ability to believe, only those who are given hearts to believe, eyes to see, ears to understand, will ever embrace the true gospel. We can't force someone to uh, see the beauty of uh, uh, Christ and His salvation. We can't force them in any way or coerce them in any way. But it is the work of the Holy Spirit of God that reveals the truth of Christ to our very soul. And we depend upon Him. And now He's commanding all men everywhere, Jew and Gentile alike, to repent, to turn from known sin... To serve the living God. That's part, brothers and sisters, that's part of the main characteristic of the true gospel. The true gospel does not say it makes no difference how we live our life in this world. It makes no difference what choices we make. The true gospel brings human responsibility and accountability to bear. And we are accountable before God for the choices that we make in this life. The Apostle Paul is preaching the tenet of repentance because it is through repentance that we are able to draw nigh unto God. You know, the message of the church has been hijacked. Can I explain? It's been hijacked. The world around us says, all the world needs now is love, sweet love. Right? We all like that tenant. Sorry, I don't sing that great, you know. I'm not Brother Nate. I can't really sing, but you get the picture. It's the only thing that there's just too little of what's the next line? No, I'm kidding. In 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 a in a way, what they're saying is right. The world does need love. But brothers and sisters, love without repentance is fake. Love without faith, the Bible says, is sin. We cannot preach the gospel of love without also preaching the gospel of faith and repentance in Christ. You see? So, what the world has done is hijacked. the the true nature of the gospel being that of love and made it into something that is not acceptable to God, that is not pleasing to God, that is not glorifying to God. Our repentance from sin glorifies God. Our belief in Jesus Christ glorifies God. Then upon that basis, we are able to love one another as Christ loved us. You see, that's what brings glory to the name of the Lord. So here's the pure apostolic message. He says, God commands everywhere that men should repent or turn from sin. And he bases that on this reality. He says in verse 31 of Acts 17, Because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. Now who is that man that he hath ordained or set apart? That's Jesus Christ, friends, Jesus Christ, whereof he hath given assurance. Now watch this. He has given assurance to all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. You see, brothers and sisters, when Jesus Christ died upon the cross for our sins, he went into the grave and, uh, For a period of three days. But he rose again. Triumphant over death. Not for himself. It wasn't for his own sake. That he did such a thing. He did that for you and I. And you're sitting there this morning. And you're saying yes brother Jeff. I believe. I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for me. I believe that he rose again. So that I would be justified before a holy God. I I believe that brother Jeff. But I'm still dealing with discouragement, or I'm still dealing with doubt. I'm still dealing with fear in my own life and in the lives of those I care about. I'm still dealing with those kind of things uh, in a, a functional way. I'm not applying what I know to be true in Christ to what I'm dealing with today. Is that your problem? You know, sometimes that's my problem. I'm not filtering the things that I endure in life here through the lens of what I view the future to be in Christ. It's it's something we all deal with because we're living in a broken world. But he says, I want to give assurance that God, Jesus Christ is going to come as judge of all men. Now. Let's go to the book of Hebrews very quickly, because most of our time will be spent this morning in the book of 1 John. But I want to use this as a foundation for our remarks. In Hebrews chapter 6, listen to what the Apostle Paul is writing concerning the blessed assurance that every believer has in the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to it carefully, friends. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11, he says, And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence. Now, when he says every one of you, he's talking about every one of you believers. That you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. Full assurance of hope. The Greek term here is plerophoria. plero. Phoria, plero And it means complete or entire confidence. We are made full as Christians by hope. The hope or the confidence that we have in Jesus Christ. This hope is referred to as a blessed hope. In Titus chapter 2 verse 13. Looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. It is a... it is a living hope. First Peter chapter one verse four, "Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath begotten us again unto a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead." It is a great hope, and it is the hope that we can only have in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is our confident expectation related to the future. That is based upon what Christ accomplished for us in the past. Divine assurance speaks of five things that I want you to put in your notes. It speaks of eternal preservation. We are preserved in Christ Jesus. That's why he said in John chapter 10. Uh, he, he said that no man is able to pluck them out of my hand. And no man and My. And no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand who is greater than I. No man is no man or demon or um, uh, age or uh, distance or power is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It speaks of preservation. It also speaks of perseverance. I realize that's a term that's fallen on hard times in our generation, but I'm going to tell you it's biblical. When Paul said in Philippians chapter 1 verse 6. We are confident in this very thing. That he that hath begun a good work in you. Shall perform it or complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters that's perseverance. But it's not. It's not because I've made up my mind to persevere. It's not because I have worked hard to persevere. It's not because I am so good that I will eventually persevere. Uh, But it is because of God's sovereign grace in your life and in mine that my hand may be weak to hold His, but His is never weak to hold mine. You follow me? That's biblical perseverance perseverance is not the doctrine of some kind of a legalistic perfection that we arrive at in this time world that's that's a uh, what i call a, a scarecrow that that's something that is invented by those that hate or despise the doctrine of uh, sanctification they they come up with these uh, foolish uh, doctrines that nobody believes and nobody ever preaches to deny the reality that when god Begins the work of regeneration in your life and mine. He brings us to conversion. Uh, He brings us to a place where we desire to please God. We desire to honor God. We pursue uh, spiritual disciplines to grow in our image of Christ. See this is what perseverance is about. And the doctrine of perseverance is a very true and biblical doctrine. And we have assurance through perseverance. And not only is it uh, descriptive of preservation and perseverance, but it's also descriptive of the power that is required to hold us unto eternal life. The power of God uh, that keeps us uh, saved, that keeps us in relationship with the Father. Can I submit something to you this morning? uh, God the Father's relationship with you and me is not because we're so likable. It's not because we're so lovely. But His relationship with you and me is not based upon our efforts or our work. But it's based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's based upon the finished work of Christ on our behalf on the tree of the cross. That's what builds assurance, friends. That's what gives us assurance. It's preservation, perseverance, power, and then the wonderful promises of God. Oh, we could preach a long time on this. The wonderful promises of God toward his elect family. He's not going to lose one. Hallelujah. And then, fifthly, it gives us peace. I'm just touching on this for your notes' sake. Just uh, understand what we're talking about when we're talking about blessed assurance. We're talking about a blessed peace that can only be had or in possession by those who believe in Jesus. By those who are the believers. This, my brothers and sisters, is the full assurance of hope that we have firm unto the end. Now, turn quickly to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. We find this is so powerful to our minds and hearts this morning. You know, he says in verse 21, we have a high priest over the house of God. Aren't you glad of that? Aren't you thankful this morning to have a high priest that can enter into the Holy of Holies? And because of what he has done, you're welcome there also. Brothers and sisters, when the veil of of the flesh of Jesus Christ was torn on the tree of the cross, it was torn so that you and I would have access to the Father. And I believe that was very graphically symbolized when the veil of the temple in Jerusalem was rent top to bottom. That was a picture of what Christ had done on our behalf on the cross. We have this access unto the Father that we didn't have before Christ died for our sins. But now he's there as our high priest, our our mediator. And we are actually able to to, uh, approach boldly to the throne of God's grace because Christ is our high priest and representing us there. Isn't that wonderful? We have in verse 19, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful? By a new and a living way that he hath consecrated us through the veil that is through his flesh. And having an high priest over the house of God, let us what? What are we going to do? Draw near. What can you do this morning? Those of you who uh, may be tribulated with doubts or fears. Those of you who may have questions about your relationship with the Father. Those of you who might be fearful to hear any message that is identifying the marks of a true born again child of God. You may be sitting there this morning wondering about that. What are you to do? Here's what the gospel says we can do. Let us draw near. With a true heart, that's a regenerated heart, in full assurance of faith. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. A full assurance, entire confidence. We are saved by grace through faith, resting alone upon the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And we can rejoice in that this morning. We can, we can praise and we can worship God for saving sinners like us. That's assurance. You, you see where I'm coming from? We're going to skip over some because of time's sake. Because I always take too much time in my introduction. I- but let's go back... <laughs> Let's go back to 1 John 5. I I just want you to see that what I'm going to say to you in a few minutes is based upon the foundation of scriptures and other parts of God's word. We're talking about blessed assurance. Assurance that can only come through Jesus Christ. Now let's go into our study of 1 John 5. The first verse captures our attention, doesn't it? Whosoever believes in Jesus Christ is born of God. I'm glad that that whosoever is there. Because it's not just those who are natural descendants of Abraham that have the right to believe. But it's those who are born of the Spirit of God. Whosoever. Now, let's let's understand it. I'm not trying to put any kind of bend or twist on this verse. I just want to see what the verse says. Whosoever believes that Jesus is the Christ will be born of God. Is that what it said? Uh, that if you will just believe, then you will become a child of God. Is that what that says? No, it doesn't. Not in the English language, but not in the Greek either. Listen to what the Greek context says. Whosoever, believeth, whosoever believes That Jesus is the Son of God. Has been. Born of God. Did you know that? Is. Is a condition existing. The Greek language is more specific. See that's why we study the Greek language. Right? And the Hebrew language. That's why we want to know what these words actually mean. Is. Brothers and sisters. Is a state existing. It's having been. Been. When we go to Romans chapter 5 verse 1. And it says therefore being justified by faith. We have peace with God. Did you know that that actually says. Therefore having been justified by faith. We have peace with God. You see brothers and sisters. We need to understand that. Listen carefully. If you miss everything else. Don't miss this one. Belief is not the cause of you being born of God. Belief is the result of you being born of God. Someone says, well, Brother Jeff, I, I've, I've never heard it quite like that. Well, that's why you haven't heard the Bible uh, taught the way it is here in our church. We, we, we strive To prove everything by the Word of God. Because that's where the treasure is. That's where the truth is. Belief in Christ is evidence of the new birth, brothers and sisters. Jesus put it plainly, did He not, in John chapter 6 and verse 29. When He said, this is the work of God that ye believe on Him whom He hath sent. In John chapter 8, when those, uh, those religious Jews came to Jesus and they did not believe and they were rejecting Jesus, they were turning away from Jesus, they were religious people, all right. They were natural Jews, all right. They were uh, religionists in, in the extreme, all right. They were doing um, a lot of things uh, in the right way but for the wrong reason. And Jesus said, ye believe me not because you are not of God. You're not born again. That's why you don't believe. You're not born again. In fact, he got a little more pointed and he said, ye are of your father the devil. Now, I've preached some hard sermons in my life. I've never said that to a congregation. I've never said that. I've preached to a... a, In the Philippines, I had the opportunity to preach to a group of Muslims in Zamboanga del Oro and... uh, And it didn't even occur to me to tell him that. But i tell you what I did tell him, Brother Nate. That there's only one way to the Father. And that's through his Son, Jesus Christ. I'm under a divine mandate to preach that gospel, to preach that word. Whether they like it or not. Whether they embrace it or not. That's not up to me. It's not up to me to make people believe. It's up to me to proclaim the truth and leave the consequences to the Spirit of God. You see that? Because I know what the Bible teaches about belief. And those who have been born again are the only ones capable of belief in the truth. I love what Paul said in Acts chapter 13 verse 48 when he preached this gospel to the Gentiles and when the Gentiles heard this they rejoiced and were glad and as many as were ordained unto eternal life believed. Who? Who's going to believe the truth? Who's going to believe in Jesus Christ? Those who were ordained unto eternal life. To me that's just the pure simple teaching of the word of God. And I love what Jesus said. And and this gets a little pointed, brethren. Forgive me if it's pointed, but I'm telling you the truth. In John chapter 10, verse 27, this is what Jesus said. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. And I know them and they what? Follow me. It didn't say they follow me in perfection. It didn't say they follow me uh, without... uh, uh, without failure or without uh, falling or without making mistakes or without sin. It didn't say any such a thing. But it said that the, that the the course of the life of the elect is to follow Christ to the best we can. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is or has been born of God. And everyone that loves him, listen to this. Somebody says, uh, love, watch this. And everyone that loves Him that begat, that's the Father, loves Him also that is begotten of Him. Why is that such an important thing for us to preach this morning? Because there are those that say, Oh, I think the world of the Father, but it's Jesus I can't believe in. Or I think uh, some even say, Well, I think a lot of Jesus, but, but it's His church. I just don't want anything to do with You see, brothers and sisters, it's a package deal. Somebody says, well, I love the Father. Well, if you love the Father, you love the Son. And by the way, if you love the Son, you love His people. You love the church. You love His bride. You can't have one without the other. He that loves Him that begat loves Him also that is begotten of Him. Loves the Father and the Son. By this we know. We don't have to guess. The, the word here is Genosco or genoskeo. And it means to be certain toward. It is to know experientially. By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and keep His commandments. Now, brothers and sisters, uh, the Apostle John was not an antinomian. The Apostle John said in this uh, text, he is saying that those who truly love God are going to strive to live for God. Are going to strive to obey God. We don't always do that, of course. But God, in His mercy and grace, loves us anyway. You know, we might give up on God, but God never gives up on us. So so John is saying the things that we do know. The agnostics say you can't know anything. John's saying, I'm going to tell you 50 things that you can know. We know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. I'm mindful of what one Texas preacher said one time. He says, uh, "He says to dwell above with the saints in love, oh, what a glory. But to live below with the folks I know is quite another story. How do you love those that you might disagree with? How do you love those that disagree with you? How do you love those that hurt you or disappointed you in any way? How do you love them? You love them through Christ. You love them through Christ. Because you're trying to follow Christ. And Christ loves you in spite of your faults and failures. That means that those that follow Christ are going to love one another in spite of the faults and failures that are obvious and daily imbibed by his people for this is verse 3 for this is the love of God which that we keep his commandments that we guard his command that we count holy his commandments and his commandments are not grievous his commandments are not grievous Uh, we we strive to follow the example of Christ because Christ is the law keeper he's He's the law giver. He's the law keeper. And we are able to identify with Christ even in our faults and failures because Christ never did fail. Aren't you glad of that, friends? For whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world. Amen. Here's genuine faith. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. You see... Genuine faith seeks to obey the preceptive or commanding will of God. And and even when we fail in our battle or in our race, we are able to be forgiven. We're able to be forgiven. We're able to be restored. We're able to be given uh, back what was lost. He said, I will restore unto thee the years that the canker worm has eaten. God is the one that does that. Not because we're so good or deserving of it. But because he's a God of grace. And he has grace toward his people. I'm glad that in the story of Samson. His hair began to grow back brother. And he was able to confront the enemies of God. In the power of faith. Believing that God was able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that he would ask or think. That's assurance. John says there's some things you can know. (laughs) The victory today are in those that trust in Christ with all their strength. Who is he that overcomes the world, but he that believes in Jesus, that Jesus is the Son of God. Somebody says, Brother Jeff, I'm I'm just uh, persuaded... And these are good people, God-fearing people, and they're God's children. I'm not saying they're not. But I'm persuaded that uh, all of these folks over here that worship Buddha, I'm persuaded that a lot of them are just deceived and God's accepting their worship and they're going to be in heaven just like the Christian. Or the Muslim over here that's blowing up all these people, listen, they're sincere in what they're doing. And because of that sincerity, God is going to let them in to heaven. I'm going to tell you that is blasphemy on the first level. I want you to understand there's only one way to God the Father, and that's through His Son, Jesus Christ. And, 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 and I realize this is not a, a, a message uh, that is acceptable in our culture or in our times and even in our denomination. But I'm going to tell you, brothers and sisters, we're, we're accountable to God for what we preach We're accountable to preach the word of God. And the word of God says that there's only one way to the Father. No man comes unto the Father except by me. John 14 verse 6. We've got to embrace that. We've got to understand if we're going to have blessed assurance, we're going to understand. have to understand what that assurance is based upon. It's based upon the revealed Word of God. It's based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's based upon the reality of the victory that we have in Him and Him alone. That's why we're pointing our Muslim friends to Christ. We're pointing our Hindu friends to Christ. Because we know that without Christ, they won't be in heaven. They won't be. In the world that knows no sin. It's important, isn't it? Could that be why there's such a lack of evangelism? In our, in our day. Because we don't see the urgency of it. We don't see the need for it. If we're antinomian, the law doesn't matter. If we're universalists, most folks are going to be in heaven anyway. Except for Hitler and Stalin and those kind of folks. If somebody ever pets their dog or whistles amazing grace, that's evidence that they're a child of God. I'm telling you, that's not so. We cannot give assurance to anyone who does not have faith in Jesus Christ. Hear John, hear what hear his heart. Remember, he's an old man. He's in his 90s uh, probably at this time. And he's grieving because of the loss of those around him. He's, he, he's grieving that the church is not uh, fully functioning as we ought to. He's, he's saying, who is he that overcomes the world but he that believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he that came by water and blood. You now, there's a lot of confusion on these verses, but it's so simple if you just let God's Word speak. This is he that came by water and blood. I believe that this is a reference to the baptism and the death of Jesus Christ. Remember when he was baptized in Matthew chapter 3? The voice out of heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And when he died upon the cross, brothers and sisters, I believe that God the Father was accepting that sacrifice. He was accepting it. He came not only by water, but also by blood. He's talking about and referring to the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on our behalf. He says he came by water and blood, and it is the Spirit that bears witness because the Spirit is truth, right? John chapter 14, verse 26, remember what he said? The Spirit is truth. He shall guide you in all truth and bring to your mind that which I have spoken, Jesus said, of the Holy Spirit, the paraclete shall come. Verse 7. For there are three that bear record in heaven. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. Somebody says, well, Brother Jeff, that's not in my translation. Did you know that? Did you know that a lot of translations are leaving that verse out? Brothers and sisters, I'm telling you, that's a mistake. And you read why they left it out. And they say something like this. Well, it's not in uh, the major manuscripts. But if you do a little more digging, you find out that it's in a lot of the manuscripts. It's in not only the Greek manuscripts, but the Latin manuscripts have uh, chapter 5, verse 7. But they're saying because they're, these words are not in all of the manuscripts, we're going to leave that out. Now, I'm not, a, I'm not as good as, at grammar as a lot of you are. But if you read verse 6 and then jump to verse 7... Does it, I mean, uh, to verse 8, leave out verse 7, does it make any sense? Isn't it a redundancy? Isn't it a repetition? It makes perfect sense to put verse 7 right where it's at. Uh, uh, and, uh, I didn't mean to get on that rabbit trail. Forgive me for that. But, but listen, there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one, and brothers and sisters, that's Bible. That's Bible. That's the Trinity. Oh, that's the only... Have you ever talked to a Jehovah Witness? And they say, well, that's the only verse you've got. And by the way, their Bible doesn't have that verse. But that's the only verse that proves the Trinity? Oh, no. There's many verses that prove the Trinity this morning that we don't have time to get into. But brothers and sisters, verse 8 starts with and. That's a conjunction, right? And. There are three... Read that with the last part of uh, verse 6. And and it is the Spirit that bears witness because the Spirit is truth. And there are three that bear witness in earth. See, it doesn't make sense. He's just repeating Himself if verse 7 is not there. Verse 7 fits there. There are three that bear record in heaven. Hallelujah. And there are three that bear witness in earth. The Spirit, and, and uh, uh, the, the, Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree in one. It's, ta- it's pointing toward the redemptive work of Jesus Christ when He was in the earth. Now, if we receive, verse 9, If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. Listen to this carefully. The witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which He test- hath testified of His Son, He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. You know what he just said? He said that the belief of Jesus Christ is something that is given. It's something that is imparted to the soul of his people. It is uh, that uh, hand, like the hand is to the arm, so faith is to the soul. It's what grabs hold of. It lays hold upon Christ. It's the God ordained means by which you and I are brought to um, a, a, a saving experiential relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what he's talking about. He that believes on the Son of God hath this witness in himself. He that believes not God has made him a liar because he believed not the record that God gave of his Son. If you have your Bible, underline the word record because the word record is marturia. It is uh, also in the Gospel of John translated witness. It is also uh, translated testimony. And what it means is to witness by blood. It is to witness by blood. Jesus Christ bore testimony to who he was because of the shedding of his blood. Somebody says, well, he's a a good moral teacher. Have you heard this? You know, Muslims believe this. He's a good. I I tell you what, I've met Muslims that believe more about Jesus Christ than some of the old Baptists I know. It amazed me. They believe in the virgin birth. True. But this is something they'll say. They'll say something like this. They'll say, Well, I tell you what, I, I believe that he was a prophet. Oh, really? Absolutely. And he was a good moral teacher. But I do not believe. That he's the son of God. Now just examine that statement. If he is a good moral teacher. Why would he tell you something that's not true? Why would he claim. To be the son of God. Why would the Bible testify. That he is the son of God. Why would the voice come out of heaven saying. This is my son. In whom I am well pleased if he's a good moral teacher. Doesn't make sense. Doesn't make sense. Brothers and sisters, do you realize, can I I just spend a little bit of time, just a few minutes, take this off of my sermon time, but it's important. Jesus, they say, Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God. Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. When they said, are you the Son of God? And he says, I am. That means, I am the Son of God. He was claiming to be the Son of God. But did you know, Buddha never claimed to be the Son of God? Did you know that? Did you know that Confucius never claimed to be the Son of God? Do you, believe, do, do you know that Muhammad never, never claimed to be the Son of God? But Jesus Christ did. And let me tell you something else that Jesus Christ did. Jesus Christ claimed to turn, turn water into wine. Did he do it? Did he do it? This means yes. This means no. Yes. Even our smallest child here, Logan, Did Jesus change water into wine? Yeah, He did. He knows that based on the testimony of the Bible. Jesus claimed that He could walk on water. Did He do it? Sure did. Jesus Christ claimed to raise the dead. Did He do it? Yes, He did. Jesus Christ could heal all manner of disease. Did He do it? Yes, He did. You see, my point is, everything that Jesus claimed come about. Everything that Jesus claimed was actually accomplished. And when Jesus Christ said that He is the Son of God, that claim is true based upon the evidence of what He had done. And brothers and sisters, you can rest in that. You can rejoice in that. You can be assured of that sacred truth. It is a record in heaven itself. I've uh, I've, I've got to get to this quickly. This is the record, verse eleven in our text. This is the record that God hath given unto us eternal life, and this life is where—not in any other—but in His Son. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. Now I'm going to ask you, how hard is that to understand? How how hard you have to work hard to misunderstand what He just said. He that has Christ is saved. He that has not Christ is damned. Period. It's not my personal opinion. It's not because of our articles of faith. It's not because of our church diplomacy or teaching. It is because of God's Word itself. God's Word says, He that believes not in Jesus Christ is condemned. But he that believes is saved. Here's the blessed assurance. These things... I'm going to close with this. I love this. These things have I written. I've written them on purpose. I've written them under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. I've written them as an eternal record on your soul. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. The most definitive basis of our assurance this morning is true faith in the risen, reigning, and returning Son of God. Thank you for your good attention. God bless you.